It's Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group, the publishers of the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website 27East.com and SagHarborExpress.com. With me is my co-host, Bill Sutton, who's the managing editor of the Express News Group. Hey, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. And uh, great panel today. We have David Rattray, the editor of the East Hampton Star. Hey, David, welcome back. Hey, nice to be here. Joe Workmeister, who's editor at the Times Review Media Group, another regular. Hey, Joe. Hey, Joe. Good to be back. And a new face, but not a new face. My goodness. I mean, just a regular. Bridget Leroy, uh, who is now the new managing editor at Dance Papers. Welcome and congratulations, Bridget. Morning, fellas. Good to have you back in the mix here. <laughs> Good to be here. So we got a ton of issues to talk about this week. We're gonna we're gonna just bounce around a lot today compared to some weeks because there's so much going on suddenly. Um, and I think let's start, Joe, with uh, you have a story this week about the upcoming summer and something that we've seen on a national level. But I was actually very curious to see how it was going to affect this region, and that is the need for so much summer help at a time when people were uh, off work for the pandemic and maybe not eager to come back. I was wondering if this region might be a little bit insulated from it the way some other areas have been because uh, folks out here in the service industry tend to make a little bit more money uh, than in some regions, but we're still seeing a real crunch here locally, huh? Yeah, I mean, we're, you know, definitely we're seeing on the North Fork is uh, a lot of places really um, you know, in a crunch to find enough people to uh, get through the summer season. It's, you know, last last summer was obviously a, a unique situation. Uh, you know, restaurants doing takeout, you know, not really um, to full capacity. So, you know, a lot of places were easily able to get by and kind of skeleton staffs. And, you know, now it's, you know, everything's back in terms of, uh, you know, your local restaurants and, um, you know, people are coming out here and there's going to be a lot of people out here this summer. And uh, uh, I think places are struggling to find enough people to, to staff, um, you know, across restaurants, even, you know, landscape and uh, marinas, um, you know, there's a lot of different different places. And, you know, I think what, what, we, what we've seen is the, the pandemic has kind of exacerbated a problem that already existed. Um, you know, I can remember us doing a story kind of a similar thing, either leading to the summer of 18 or 2019. Um, you know, I remember the picture of all the help wanted signs that we had and, and, you know, due to a number of reasons, you know, it's tough to get housing out here, obviously. So it's tough to get, um, you know, people out here for those kind of lower wage jobs and, uh, you know, your younger students may have other opportunities or, or whatnot. And, um, and, and now, you add in the different factors of the pandemic and it's even tougher and you just drive around. And I mean, you know, you look, look left and right as you're going, you know, down downtown Riverhead or in Mattituck or whatever it may be. And, you know, everyone's got help wanted signs and, uh, and, you know, it's, as you said, it is a national issue we've seen. And, you know, part of it is um, also just, you know, some people have kind of found better opportunities, um, you know, outside of their typical minimum wage job down at the, you know, cleaning dishes at the restaurant or whatever it may be. And uh, so that, you know, that's kind of a little bit of a reckoning, I think, on a national level of, um, you know, you know, are these kind of low level, low, low paying jobs, you know, enough for people um, to get by on. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack there for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, Bridge. 
No, I'm just wondering. It's it's because we obviously have more people who've moved out here since the pandemic started. And you'd think a lot of them have, you know, teenagers or something like that, that, that would, that this area would be the kind of place where those jobs would be filled very quickly. But maybe it's because it's a different tax bracket, but I, I know- it's Tough to drive your BMW to the restaurant to, to wash dishes. <laughs> you know, I, Dave Rattray and my husband used to like build things, you know what I yeah. mean? It's like, it's like yeah. people, you know, we all did, did jobs that yeah. maybe it's a different generational thing. But David, that 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 has kind of evolved over the last ten to twenty years, hasn't it? That the the high school jobs have kind of gone away, haven't they? I mean, that was that well, was really a big part of the summer economy. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think that there's uh, among college kids headed to college, there's just tremendous pressure, particularly as they get right into that prime sort of first or second job uh, realm, to be doing something other than working as a cashier. They need to be climbing mountains or whatever to kind of build that well-rounded college application. But um, you know, there's a lot of indicators that 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 employers are you know, sort of beyond desperate. There's, there's a couple of things. One is signing bonuses. I, I know that there's a big food uh, company here uh, that is offering, I think, from a thousand to $2,000 just for joining. And the wow. other thing is I've got a, we've been running an ad this week and you guys probably have it too. It's some private club in Southampton. It says all ages 14 plus are invited to apply. And, and it's like a list of all the stuff that you, you know, you don't really think a 14 year old's doing. So I think there's real desperation. Um, but I know I, I think Bridget's really onto something that that they're definitely, you know, not only are there sort of fewer of those folks around that sort of families with kids that need to work, but also there's pressures for them not to. Well, and the other thing I think maybe we should talk about um, is really it's a, also a supply and demand issue that as you know, the the um, the need of the complexity of, of an ordinary restaurant now is a resort and it's got all these other things going on. Uh, so you've got much greater commercial density, much more activity, and you haven't had a rise in housing, frankly, the opposite. So in, in some ways, I think uh, the, the East End has kind of built itself into this problem. So when you have these big operations that demand, you know, the star used to be one of the biggest employers in town. Now we don't even rank, you know, so it's, it, it's been that shift as well. Mm-hmm. True. But I, I want to go back to the fact that I think there's plenty of, of teenagers or young people to take these jobs. But as as Dave was saying, it's like, uh, go climb a mountain instead because it'll look better on your college resume. And the yeah. parents aren't saying, hey, you know, this will this will, you know, strengthen your this will, you know, increase your fortitude to take this job at, at mm. you know, Wendy's or, or whatever it is or or, you know, Claudio's or whatever the restaurants yeah. are. Or in landscaping, you or know, landscaping. things like that. Right. That was always a big yeah. part of it. Joe, yeah. have you. One of the things I've been curious about is at the national level, the conversation about this has centered on the the compensation and the idea that people aren't eager to come back to work because they're getting more uh, in the pandemic benefits just sitting home and not working. $300 a week in federal unemployment uh, bonus, right? I'm not sure that holds true here. I think it's different here because a lot of the jobs pay a little better, but I'm wondering if, if in your reporting, uh, is it changing the pay schedule at all? Is it starting to push up uh, compensation for some of these jobs in order to try and fill them? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a factor. Um, you know, some of the people uh, interviewed in the story, you know, did mention that, and you know, some of the people said they don't want to entirely 
you know, blame that because, you know, it, it was a beneficial thing that the you know, federal government did. You know, people were struggling for a long time and weren't getting the work um, that they maybe could have for a long time. So, um, but, you know, there also, I think, could be some factor where, um, you know, some people, you know, as we're talking about, you know, some of the college kids or, or whatnot, um, you know, may not want to get back into that full-time work that they typically would be because they can work maybe a couple days and still collect that unemployment. Hmm. So, so I, I think that's uh, a little bit of a factor. You know, I, I hear that uh, complaint a little bit from my uh, wife who, you know, ma- help manages two restaurants on the North Fork and, um, oh, so you, you know, just getting, here. Yeah. yeah, you know, just getting uh, some of the people to, you know, come back full time, you know, it, you know, they work a couple of days and then, you know, it's excuse after excuse why, uh, you know, they can't come back for, um, but, you know, Child, it, it's, it's care too. I mean, a couple of right, that's not, that was another story people were talking about. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I don't know that it's, uh, you know, uh, the, the printing plant that we use is dealing with in the middle of Long Island uh, is dealing with the same thing. Very difficult to find people who want to do that kind of physical demanding sweaty, noisy work. And I, I think that, um, you know, we're, 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 it's interesting. We're, it's so many different factors we're talking about here. It's really, it's, it's sort of the it's bad thing. It's kind of like a perfect storm of, of factors leading to just a really tough situation for every kind of employer. Uh, and uh, wait, but wages, I don't know, have wages gone up? I, I don't think I've really seen huge wage gains in the service industry because, you know, it's season for the most part seasonal. And, um, I yeah. think yeah, somebody mentioned it too earlier. And one of the one of the themes in the reporting on this subject nationally is that a lot of the people that held these jobs have moved on and they've actually gone back to school or they've hmm. they've moved into other industries and right. have sort of upgraded uh, and mm-hmm. and really don't want to go backwards to service industry jobs. That's that that has a real potential to be a problem, Bridget. And there's also uh, the national, if you're looking at the national picture, that, of course, um, generationally, if that's a word, uh, we're, we're not producing as many. We're not popping out kids the way we used mm. to. So um, it's been like three years in a row where the demographics have gone down for younger people. So uh, like we're, we're turning into like the new Japan kind of like where mm. there's older people who um are aging out of jobs or, or, you know, starting to collect social security. And we don't have as many, it may feel when you have three kids, like, you know, <laughs> there's, the, there's plenty of kids to go around, but less people are having children. So, so that we're just getting to that teenage years where, where those people who might usually take those jobs are, and that's the national level. That's not necessarily out here. I feel like so many things, I'm sorry, Joe, I was just going to say, I feel like with so many things, the pandemic just made it worse. It was right. already a trend, and I think it just yeah. made it worse. What, your point was going to be what? I, I was just going to say, you know, I, I would sort of hope it would, you know, you, on the national kind of scale, it would lead to sort of this greater appreciation for some of you know the work that's done on these, you know, low-wage jobs and how dependent, you know, we find out that we are for these people to do this work. And, um you know, when when the pandemic was first starting, you kind of saw the, the there seemed to be this greater appreciation for, you know, people doing supermarket jobs and, you know, those those frontline workers um, that were coming in every day and doing um, these jobs to help keep everything up and running. And and uh, it sort of feels like we kind of already have like 
forgotten that and now it's uh we're you know we're over here complaining about everyone not rushing back to their minimum wage jobs being like well why aren't they working you know it's i'll say this it's worse in some areas because i felt comfortable enough recently to travel to myrtle beach to play golf for a couple of days with some friends and that's another resort area and i was every restaurant there is on reduced capacity and it's not because of covid it's because they don't have the staff to serve a full a full restaurant they have to keep the restaurants at half full and i talked to a waitress there who said that the minimum wage for waitresses and 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 wait staff in uh in south carolina is two dollars an hour um Hmm. and i know that in a lot of areas that's that's true i don't think in new york that's true i think it's a little better but it just goes to show you some of the other resort areas are in the same boat and and maybe facing worse headwinds than we have here but it's going to be an interesting uh theme for the summer uh no question we'll have to keep an eye on it uh this is behind the headlines i'm joe shaw my co-host is bill sutton and with us today david rattray from the east hampton star joe workmeister of the times review media group and bridget Leroy of dance papers um so let's switch gears and david you know the other big topic right now oh the cops are coming dave watch out um the parking is going to be uh, the topic in East Hampton and Sag Harbor this summer. And uh, th- that is a topic that is evolving, isn't it? And there were some new developments this week. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really something. So <clears throat> Sag Harbor has uh, begun a, a limited uh, pay parking experiment, I suppose you can call it, using a, a smartphone app. Uh, East Hampton Village is just, I think, as of yesterday or the end of this week, um, starting using the same app and the non-smartphone sector of our population has absolutely hit the roof and people are going bananas about it um their privacy concerns uh there's a lot of confusion as well uh whether village residents get to park or do they have to get the app does the app charge you know 30 cents even if you're in there for free and the, the general sense and i think we've talked about it on this this program before is that in resort communities where you have people cruising into town, um, you know, maybe for an afternoon looking to park, the, the 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 chaos that getting them to download this unfamiliar app, figuring out how to get their credit card information on it. And, and the thing about this is it's so creepy is um, it was sort of twofold. One is the, the, the app's business model seems to be uh, partnering with other organizations to provide super geo-targeted information. So had you, you know, been looking at screwdrivers online at home, it'll triangulate if you're out in front of the hardware, say percent hardware, and it'll say, hey, screwdrivers in here, Joe, come on in. Um, wow. and so it's got a lot of really intrusive commercial um data collection, really of all sorts. Um, they had had a giant security breach at this company. And then on top of that, you read the fine print in the privacy policy, down at the bottom it says, they share all that stuff with the municipality that brings them on board. So say your, your Sag Harbor mayor, your East Hampton mayor, technically would have information like your address, credit card, where you were, um, you know, license plate yeah. number, all this stuff. And I'm just thinking, man, do I really want, you know, the mayor any of East new, Hampton Village to know that I'm, you know. Any new mayor policy that you describe as creepy probably is, <laughs> is something that, that needs a little closer. Just to be clear, these are these this is an app based parking paid parking 
that yeah. replaces parking meters, basically. But it, but you have to have the app, right? Or uh, well, you don't. Here's you the funny thing: you can call a phone number. You can call. But we have a, we have a letter of complaint coming in that apparently it took one woman twenty minutes of you know utter frustration and being on hold to get a real person to whom she could give her credit card, and I think it didn't pan out anyway. So there's sort of this assumption that this app-based thing will work in a transient among sort of a tra- both the transient um, users of the parking lots here in East Hampton Village, but also, um, you know, we have a, a significantly older demographic that, you know, are just, they, they don't want to use apps. They use smartphones reluctantly. They need help figuring out how to use the camera and heaven forbid, get, you know, photograph off the camera to, you know, to share. Um, so, so I think there's, uh, it, it we'll call it an experiment. Maybe it'll work. I don't know. I think what's going to happen, of course, is that people are going to just cruise around and look for the parking spaces where they don't have to deal with all this nonsense. Right. Privacy. I mean, people look, we've given up our entire souls to our googly overlords. So, <laughs> <laughs> right? so we're kind of used to that. But, you know, the hassle factor is going to be a lot more important probably than the privacy factor. But Especially I'm telling you, I listen, I'm not getting the app. I'm going to walk. You <laughs> <laughs> have that ability, I mean, because you're close to town. But yeah, mark my words, though. I'm not getting it. Bridget. Well, let me just tell you something. I mean, coming coming from a Westerner, that means west <laughs> of the canal, where we are far, far ahead of the of the oh, antiquated yeah. Hamptons. Mm. So we've been using this, like Patchogue has it, uh, Port Jeff has it. Has it, and they have huge farmers markets and a lot going on. I mean, Patchogue is a happening place now. It's a hipster town, and and <laughs> Jeff has the farmers market. There's all kinds of stuff, but you cannot find parking sometimes there. It's just like the Hamptons, but you pull into a space. The space has a number on it, like six ninety four, and there's a kiosk, and you go and put six ninety four in, and you put in your credit card, and you get to choose. It's not that big a deal. Yeah, or- that I can handle. <laughs> So if they just had kiosk, like one kiosk yes. in town, it would be like, or, or two of them, that yeah. would be, that would make so much more sense because they're doing it successfully in Patchogue and Port Jeff. And Patchogue is like a model for, for everyone yeah. now, what they've I, I think you point to something that's sort of fundamental about local government is, is they always seem to they need to reinvent the wheel, A, and B, they never look at what the other guys are doing successfully or unsuccessfully. Uh, there's this sort of quality of like... Um, I, making I it they, up as they go along. And, and, you know, so by the time their term is over, they're like finally getting the policy down or, you know, it's it's. Uh, I think they were so. kind of sold on the attraction of not having to pay for the kiosks in East Hampton and Sag Harbor that that this company came in and said, you know, with, with the app, there's there's really no cost outlay to the village. So, so you know, you could just yeah, because they're it, selling your data it and forget it, you <laughs> right. know, and, and, and you're ready to go. Whereas, yeah. you know, the kiosks, they would have to pay for in Port Jeff. I, I go to Port Jeff all the time and, it, and it's and it's terrific. I mean, it yeah. works well and, and it's not an issue. It's uh, really but but it, costs, it costs money to maintain that, I guess. David, David described this as an experiment. Joe, is, is this on the uh, radar at all in the North Fork and in Riverhead? Has there been um, any conversation about about something like this? Because it's suddenly yeah, I it's heard interesting it. to me because both Sag Harbor and, and East Hampton uh, started working with the same company. And actually, Southampton has made noises like they may they may see how this goes and jump on board as well. I wouldn't and, be surprised to see it in Greenport at some point. Uh, West Hampton Beach is another option as well, I think. But um, mm. is, is anybody up your way talking about this, or is this really just a South Fork issue? 
Yeah, I haven't really heard anything specific about this kind of app being used. I mean, as uh, Bill said, you know, Greenport's one area where parking is uh, always a big issue and kind of figuring out how to uh, how to do that. You know, they've gone through a couple of things there. And uh, in Riverhead, um, you know, parking's not not too too big a deal. Um, um, you know, you can typically get parking on street. Um, you know, it's usually not too hard. So, um, you know, it's not something that's uh, – a big, a big issue that's uh, constantly coming up there either. But, yeah, I mean, I, I live in Patchogue, so I, I see, I see the kiosk here, you know, so you've used, they the, seem to work. And, yeah. um, I mean, I, I, I don't might really ever use them myself cause I can just walk into town. So I never actually, oh, ever actually have to park. I live on a farm in the middle of Mariches. <laughs> well, anyway, we don't even have sidewalks. <laughs> Not not walker friendly. I, you know, David, in the middle of all this, too, East Hampton Village is looking at an option where and I'm, they're not looking at they're going to do this. Apparently, they're going to change the parking on busy Newtown Lane to diagonal spaces. Uh, and you're going to lose a lane of travel on Newtown Lane. How do you think right. that's going to go? <laughs> yeah, Newtown <laughs> Lane is is um, basically to feeder onto 27 slash Main Street. So people coming uh you know, sort of down to get to go east or west uh, along Route 27, uh, generally take Newtown Lane through through the village. Uh, so they're going to eliminate one the lane that sort of feeds into um, Main Street. Uh, and there are already tie ups that can be quite long. Um, and what it's going to do, I think, is as you know, as traffic slows, you're down to, to worse than it is now. People are going to begin to you know peel off and start using more and more of the residential lanes. Uh, there's already tie-ups on other roads, but this diagonal parking thing is interesting. I mean, I think it, you know, from maybe a pedestrian point of view, to have less action on the street might be attractive. Uh, you know, certainly th there's a little, I think there's a little bit of Sag Harbor envy going on. Sag Harbor has diagonal parking. Um, let's see, Southampton, Maine has, has diagonal parking. Yeah, yeah, we have, we have diagonal Beach. parking on, right. on some of the key streets, yeah. Yeah, uh, Newtown is less broad than those two streets, I would say. But it, it also, you know, neither you of those... From the experience in Southampton, too, that yeah. Main Street and, and some of the other streets have the diagonal parking. I mean, that creates its own traffic hazards as well, because you have to back out into traffic yeah. and that causes slowdown. So, I mean, it's not a I don't know that it's a it's worse, but it's it's not necessarily well, it, better. Uh, but it, counter, counter that, though, with, with having to wait for that person to try to parallel park four times because they don't know how to parallel true. park That's and they're pulling in, backing out, pulling forward, backing out. And that ties up traffic, too. So, I mean, it's a. And the diagonal also adds a few spaces. Bridget, you were going to say. No, I'm just, I'm curious because I, I mean, I'm not, I haven't been, my, hey, my big story this week is about a, a musical about lima beans because I'm a fan. <laughs> <laughs> right. Seriously, um, what is the reasoning behind changing it? <laughs> no one knows. It's, it's to, I believe it's to adding add, spaces. Well, yeah. They're adding 12 spaces to do it. And, but I wonder if talk about Harbor Envy, and, and I wonder if that might be a slight <laughs> bit of it is that some of the other villages have the diagonal parking, and it, it's another experiment. Um, but I in East Hampton Village, they they're broader. They're broader streets. Newtown Lane is yeah. not a broad street. Um, East Hampton Village uh, officials have framed it as making uh, more room for outdoor dining. There's three restaurants on that stretch, so that doesn't quite add up. And this more room thing is on the public sidewalk. So 
it's a sort of strange idea that, you know, you give up. I, I don't know. You know, it's it's entertaining. We you know, we like we like village governments trying different stuff. I mean, nothing like experiments in the middle of the on Memorial Day weekend and, yeah. and heading into into maybe the biggest summer we're maybe, ever going to have out here. It'll be. Interesting yeah, maybe we need to go live stream uh, the parking lots and <laughs> just a standing uh, yeah. uh, a camera set up on Newtown Lane for for the summer. <laughs> uh, this is behind the headlines on WLAWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group with us today. David Rattray of the East Hampton Star. Joe Workmeister of the Times Review Media Group and Bridget Leroy of Dan's Papers. Um, David, you guys had a great story this week about the wind blown, um, mm-hmm. and you you actually uh, featured the first chapter of a book on. Okay, tell us a little bit about this story. I think we also had a story this week about the book that came out. Uh, it's quite a tale, isn't it? Yeah, this is a nonfiction book by uh, Amanda M. Fairbanks, who was uh, an education reporter here way back mm-hmm. then. And I remember Amanda. Right. Uh, and she had a, it's fascinating how this starts. So this is a story about a 1984 uh, sinking of a commercial fishing vessel for all four uh, men aboard uh, and the ship were never found. Uh, and it, it, it was a tragedy that was really deeply felt and is still very deeply felt here. Uh, East Hampton, uh, Montauk uh, was really one of those sort of terrible losses. And it came at a time, um, maybe a slightly more innocent time. Uh, So there's a sense of uh, loss of innocence. So Amanda spent five years working on this book, interviewed more than 100 people, uh, surviving family members, friends, commercial fishermen who were there at the time, and has put together a book less about a boat sinking um, which, frankly, she as an author said she's, she wouldn't even really be interested in writing. And much more a story about the people they left behind, um, the women who lost uh, husbands or boyfriends or fiancés in that in that sinking. And how all these years later, this ha- this has never left them. Um and that, uh, you know, for many, many, many people, not not just the sort of loved ones, that this has left this indelible mark. So we have the first chapter in our um, magazine, East, uh, which came out yesterday in, in the Star and with, you know, amazing photographs from the Times uh, from the time. And um, it's really moving. And in a way, because you get a, you get a sense of of how tragedy can affect families, tear families apart. Um, there's a secret at the core uh, of the, the the book as well. Um, Amanda's doing a lot of uh, events. I think she just did one with Bookhampton in, in East Hampton. She's, um, you know, this is Simon and Schuster put it out and I think is, you know, putting some resources behind it. It's- uh, And you and Little uh, do an interview with her as well? Yes, we did. We, we hosted a, a thing uh, for Bookhampton. Biddle Duke. But here's the funny thing, just a, one quick thing is that, you know, this all started as an assignment uh, for East Magazine. The founding editor, <laughs> Biddle Duke, asked Amanda uh, or told Amanda this story. And she said, oh, my God, how come you're not writing it? Well, Biddle, the, this, the editor, knew some of the guys on it and the survivors. And for him, it was too close and too raw. And uh 
when a when a key source sort of pulled out of the article, um, we all put it aside, and Amanda was able to pick it back up and spend all of this time and all of these. And I think she told me she had one hundred and fifty thousand words of just notes from interviews. Oh, you know, just wow. this is amazing. It's really a reporting job she did, and it's see, it's, see it. it's I, marvel. I, I, I would I, say I, you y'all should read it. It's it's a hell of a book. Yeah, and, I, I, you know we you know, we. The show's the called show's Behind the Headlines, and, and one, one of the things about the alchemy is, is uh, uh, except it's an echo that we're getting now suddenly. Are you hearing that? Yeah. Um, it, I, I'm thinking, Joe, of some of the work you guys have done uh, up at the Times Review. Um, mm. So much of what we do in community journalism these days sparks longer form works, and you guys had a long form piece that's one of the one of the great things uh, in community journalism that I've seen. And I think we've all tried to tackle more of this, right? I mean, it's, this is, this is, I, I, my career in community journalism has been a time when it's evolved from school board meetings and bake sales and things like that, and, and really become a primary way of telling stories uh, in a way that, that major dailies used to be the only ones doing. But I think, I think community journalism is picking that up now and really doing deep dives and really doing some amazing storytelling. And you guys have done a lot of that up there, right, Joe? Yeah, you mentioned um, the story Gone in 2017. Um, you know, that was uh, a big project uh, that, you know, involved video and, you know, you know a special um uh, piece in the you know special section in the paper to run the story, um, you know, which is you know a pretty rare thing, um, you know, for us to have kind of like a special section like that dedicated to a story, you know, kind of like you know the New York Times does from time to time with their some of their bigger stories. So that you know that was really cool, and um, yeah, I mean it's 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 uh, tough to you know to to, to really have you know, the resources to dive into those you know, kind of stories. But when you know those stories are out there and, uh, you know, it kind of gives you that motivation to, you know, try to try to tackle them. And as you said, you know, it's about storytelling, even when a story may not be quite that big and elaborate, you know, there's still great opportunities to, you know, to tell, you know, really interesting stories, you know, even if it's just 1500 words, um, you know, that, you people aren't going to find those stories elsewhere. And that's, uh, I think, what's, um, you know, the great thing about you know, what we're able to do each week. Absolutely. Bridget, you guys, when at the lamented, uh, lost and lamented independent, you guys were, were doing the, that kind of work too, the longer stories. Um, yeah, we were, we did the thing on There Goes the Neighborhood, um, which was yeah, I mean, it's, what, I, what I wanted to say, I mean, because this, and Amanda's book is wonderful. And I was at the star when Amanda was there, actually. Working for Dan, right, because right. Dan, Dan's is my EGOT. You all know I've worked for. Yes. So, um, but uh, Amanda, I mean, it, it brings the bigger picture of community journalism and following it up and, and, and expanding the stories. Because I'm thinking of the scandal on Plum Island that came out. Marion, I've forgotten her last name, but was was a book about the Plum Island um you know the homosexual mm -hmm. guy who was uh, in the in the, yeah, the commander, I think. Commander, and then uh, Mark Torres on the on the North Fork, who's mm. known for his detective books, has just released. Um, is it called Dust for Blood? About yeah, that's uh, terrific, actually. Immigrants, right? So there's all these um, really amazing these journalists. I am not going to be one of them. I can't write more than 650 words. <laughs> no. Like losing my mind, but <laughs> but there are these journalists who are who are doing these really deep dives into local, really local stories, and they're wonderful. And Amanda's book also, just to 
give a quick shout out. I also am the managing editor of a new magazine called Afloat USA that just came out this week. And we also um, have something about Amanda's book in there because it is. What, what is the title of her book? I missed that. The Lost Boys of Montauk. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, okay, I've heard of that now. That, yeah. It's a, and, and we've had some great uh, journalists come through our doors and go on to bigger things. I mean, we have former reporters at The New Yorker. And David, you, you have a former reporter who went on to sort of innovate the podcast industry, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that was... Um God, I'm blanking on her name. Sarah, Sarah Koenig. Sarah Koenig, for God's Sarah, sake. Sarah Koenig. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think she was, she wasn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sarah Koenig, uh, you know, is the executive producer, uh, the producer of Serial, uh, uh, which was, wow. the, you know, really did upend podcasting. Um, I just think it's awesome that they learned to, to and, and I mean, Joe Napolitano, one of our former reporters, uh, just wrote a book about education uh, mm -hmm. for um, immigrant kids that just came out. And I just think it's it's been remarkable to watch uh, young men and women who learn how to tell these stories at our level and then move on and just go on to innovate and do bigger and better things. It's one of the most rewarding things about doing what we do, I think. But I think it says a lot about our audiences as well. And, and they, that we have these terrific reading um, audiences who respond to narrative in that way and then hopefully look to us to do that. Um, and, and, and so that that I think we're really I mean, not to blow smoke, but I do think that we're we, we are on the East End pretty lucky to have a, a loyal readership and a very well read readership, um, you know, that knows BS when you sling it at them. But they also respond very positively to the, the, the better stuff that you do, uh, the long form or short form, you know, whatever it is, they um they're not quiet if they don't like something and, and, you know, they, they're, they're vocal when they do. So it's, really it's, nice a, it's a good environment, I think, for all of us to do what we do. It's Absolutely. A, but it's also a really good um, mix because, you know, people think the Hamptons, they, they don't, you know, I mean, across America, they think Hamptons, they think like Kardashians, you know, or something, which mm. I, you know, whatever. And it's so great to have these like stories about the, the real folks, the real people. I always say, you know, the Hamptons is a small town. And if you, hmm come in from the outside. I mean, you know, I, I was at a, believe it or not, a party on Thursday. Um, my first, probably like a super spreader event, whatever. Um, I'm kidding. Uh, but, you know, there, there are people who are new out here who are introducing those of us who have known each other for 40 years. You know, they're like, oh, this great artist you've never met. And I'm like, yes, we've, you know, they were at my yeah. wedding. You know, it's like, so we are really a small town. So it's nice. It's really great that these journalists are picking up on some of these true local stories and, and bringing them to the forefront. And, um, and that works, that works with local, local topics too. David, you had a deeper dive this week about um, a, a controversy that's going on in East Hampton related to, to one of the developments in Montauk and, and right. the town government. Right. This is um you know, it's one of those kind of bizarre sagas about land use. It's the Dorier's Lobster Deck, which I think had the $50 lobster salad. It's turned into a very, very sort of high-end restaurant, kind of resorty sort of place where you can pull your your kind of mega yacht up and 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 um, 
But the the owner, a guy named Mark Rowan, who's a Connecticut guy, uh, has had no end of trouble getting approvals. The town, I according to him, the town was uh, what do they call it? Slow walking his applications. He even accused uh, the town planning board of making key documents disappear and then you know miraculously reappear when when pressed. Um, but among so here's the thing, and it's, it's, it's kind of a journalism story too, is among one of these lawsuits. We got hundreds of pages of depositions, which are sworn statements in the presence of lawyers and a, a stenographer and a video recorder. Um, and when journalists get a hold of dep- depositions, they really begin to um, to grin and salivate because you can use what's said in a deposition. So it's really the dirt, the backstory, um, the stuff that we usually are the last people to find out about, the backroom deals. And so what What I, I actually wrote the piece, I because I, um, I took the time to read all of these things. Um, but what, what it paints a picture of the, of the way I think a lot of local governments kind of operate um, kind of off the cuff, like a town attorney crafting a secret settlement deal with the uh, applicant's attorney. Uh, you know, the supervisor knows about it, but no one else on the town board knows about it. And it all comes out in the depositions. And you know, it's one of those things like you kind of know government is is kind of like sausage making, but you don't actually get to look in the factory, but you get a deposition about something like this. And you go, wow, this is this is fascinating. So anyway, you know, it's funny. We we talked about stories. So I tried to take this um, saga that begins really probably about 2017 and turn it into a 1300 word story that was readable, that had structure. Um you know, I'm not sure it succeeded. I mean, people seem to be talking more about, you know, the fact that a favorite restaurant in Amagansett is about to get booted out by the landlord because the rent tripled, um, you know, whatever. I But I did, you know, I had fun writing it. And it's, um, I think it's, it's a, you know, more. It's analytical. I mean, it's some of it is doing the analysis for, for readers and, and laying it out for them so that they can follow the story, right? That's kind of our job, right? To like, yeah. you know, to go to these meetings, to read these documents so they don't have to, but but then we can provide the sort of salient, structured, um, you know, report. So, yeah. And, and Bill, we had a story this week about um, a rally that took place at Southampton Town Hall on Tuesday night, and it's about preserving uh, Sugarloaf, which is a, a key part of uh, Shinnecock Hills and, and waiting for the town mm. board to take some key action, right? That's another story that we did a little bit of a deeper dive on. Right. I mean, and it's been it's been ongoing, the, the, the Shinnecock desire to to save these these ancient burial grounds mm. um, and, and to have the town board uh, pass legislation. They passed a, a moratorium last year and then it just felt like, you know, legislation to protect these burial grounds was stretching out and stretching out and stretching out. But I think they they finally got on that. And one key parcel um, the, that the town with CPF money in, in combination with the land trust is, is going um, to purchase uh, to, to permanently preserve one of these parcels. Um, you know, I, I think that's a, it's a great thing. You had, and, and you had, you know, you, you had uh, the rally in front of town hall um, which which is seems to be key for the Shinnecock movement. They they seem to be able to key into that really well. You had um, you know famous name there, Roger Waters from Pink Floyd fame, 
showed up and has been a big supporter of, of the Shinnecock. And, and that's, that's great to see too. And it, it feels like there's, there's finally after, after decades of, 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 uh, you know, the nation trying to preserve these, these burial grounds, it feels like there's finally movement on that. Yeah. It's really interesting what they, they've finally actually been able to acquire <clears throat> one of the properties right. and, and the house is go- the, the, the large house on that property is going to be torn down and mm. and the property is going to be restored uh, to its original state. I, it has to be torn down, I, I think, to use the CPF money. But I mean, that's yeah. where the land trust comes in that they can purchase the property and and then the the building can be torn down and yeah, I and think it's transferred to CPF. Mm-hmm. The land trust has gotten involved in in this in this movement, and, and from what I hear, it's going to have a big role going forward as they try and do more in Shinnecock Hills. Bridget, you had something to add. Oh, just that uh, on Thursday night, I, I saw Jay Schneiderman and, and I knew I was coming on this show, which is taped on Friday morning. And I went up to him and I said, quick, explain Sugarloaf in 10 words or less. I knew you guys were going to talk about it. And uh, and he just said it was all positive, that there really wasn't anybody there, you know, with signs saying, you know, don't do this. I mean, everybody's positive. I think it's more a question of like how to move forward with it. I think it's been really interesting, the change in the the uh, reaction to the tribe's complaints. I think there is much more receptiveness now. Um, and I, David, I we've been watching this for years and I, th- I don't know that you agree, but I think I think there's a whole different feeling in the community about the, the tribe's claims and, and what the, what they want to accomplish. And I, I don't know that it's whether that has to do with local changes or if it's part of a national movement towards mm. thinking about indigenous peoples and people, yeah. people. Yeah, you know, it, it, I, I think you're right. I think that there there is a sense of the needle moving on um, Native Americans and uh, people of color, um, more marginalized uh, groups. Um, you know, I think this country has look, I mean, this we you know, who would have thought that that um, same sex marriage would actually in our lifetimes become a real thing? Uh, so I do think there have been some broader cultural changes. Um I think that the 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 young leaders at the, at the, in the of the Shinnecock uh, Indian Nation are fantastic and out there and um, involved in stuff. Uh, yeah, I think there's receptive there's a there's a cultural receptiveness. And you know, you remember right the the, the those um, the monuments that went up on 27. The when the first one went up, the big illuminated tower I mean, people call it a billboard the, the the tribe calls it a monument you know the reaction was oh my god that's horrible now a lot of people that i talk to are kind of saying you know i kind of like them and i think they're responding not to the aesthetic of them because they're kind of intense right but that they represent um the nation sort of rise you know not rising up per se but but saying hey you know here we are yeah Absolutely. We've been here forever. From the beginning. Right. right? That was that was really their motivation as much as an economic development mm. stuff. Yeah. It was about um, staking out the territory and, and being uh, visible. And and I have to say, our editorial page did a 180 on this. We were we reacted sort of knee jerk, I think, at them mm. when they first went up. But I think we have all in our editorial board had a reconsideration. And now mm. that we've lived with them for a little while, um, I think they've become sort of part of the landscape. And I'm with you, David. I feel like they they do kind of they they give props to the to the tribe that that uh, I, in a I way think, that that it deserves. Yeah, Bridget. I think people. I'm oh, sorry. I, 
I just think that we live in a, a, a beautiful historical area. So if anything has changed, I mean, you know, like we could get into the whole Bay Street thing. I mean, if anything looks like it's going to, you know, screw up the landscape, people go nuts. Um, but then after they've lived with it for a little while, it becomes acceptable or even venerated. So uh, I think that's just happened over and over and over again. You know, since I think I, that's absolutely true. Yeah. The star in 1983, it's been that way. You know, there, when yeah. something new comes in, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not just the human way, something new comes in, you're suspicious right. and you don't want it. Right. Well, the, you know, it's Sag Harbor, right? The 7 Eleven, when it was proposed <laughs> in about 1990 or 91, was going to be the end of, you know, Western civilization. Now people are lamenting, like, where are we going to get coffee? You know, so <laughs> I mean, and, you know, what the, the people back in 1990 or 91, who said uh, it's going to be the center of crime were actually right. <laughs> Nothing serious. They were correct, but that, but you know, but what it, the, what the service it provided, um, you know, it. <laughs> white white Friendly, collar crime, only yeah. white collar crime. Friendly, well, you know. Fran Leibowitz told a great story on on the documentary that, that aired recently about uh, being at dinner and having someone approach she and her dining partner about sign a petition to save this building and they signed the petition and he said uh, i'm just thinking that i signed the petition about about you know against that building when it was built now i'm signing <laughs> so saving it. so it's very similar yeah. uh, this is behind the headlines i'm joe shaw bill sutton is my co-host we're with the express news group david rattray of the east hampton star Joe Workmeister of the Times Review Media Group and Bridget Leroy of Dance Papers with us. Joe, so we're talking about the way we tell stories. We don't just tell stories about government stuff. You've got a great story this week about something that happened with Riverhead High School and the theater group there and how they adapted to the pandemic and how we're going to see that pan out here this week. Yeah, you know, it's always nice when, uh, you know, you get, you know, a little bit of a feel-good story, you know, of course. And, um, you know, at Riverhead High School, um, you know, they had some some obstacles thrown their way for the students because the, the budget had failed last year. So that meant uh, athletics and extracurricular clubs, including theater and everything, um, were, were canceled. And um, it wasn't until um, about late December that the Board of Education had um, approved um, some funding for some of these um, athletics and everything to kind of come back, but not until uh, the beginning of March, basically for the spring season. And, um, you know, for, for the theater kids, it was particularly tough because, you know, there's not a lot of necessarily other outlets to kind of go to, whereas, you know, a baseball player can kind of have his travel team or a soccer kid, you know, has some other leagues that they could play in outside of school and kind of keep going. Um, that didn't exist so much for um, the, for theater kids and particularly Mm -hmm. because a lot of the venues they use, um, you know, weren't accessible um, even for some of those outside groups outside the school. And um, so for Riverhead, the blue mass is their theater group. And on March 1st was the first day they could um, start up. And typically for the spring production, they would get going with, you know, kind of the prep work, you know, as early as December or January. So they were a couple of months behind. And as the co-directors were saying, when they kind of got there the first day, um, you know, there was a little bit of apprehension from, you know, everyone of like, you know, well, how are we going to do this? You know, um, putting on a and, live show, which, which yeah, doesn't allow for a lot of, uh, and, and you had a number of restrictions in place from, you know, wearing masks that to be, you know, even more distanced apart because of singing, which could spread, um, you know, more so than just talking so that, you know, there were so many obstacles along the way. And, um, 
so basically what they decided was they were going to do something they were going to pick up a show that they could do as a stream and kind of just air it as opposed to you know just putting it all together as a live show on a stage and um, so they chose high school musical and as they started doing it they kind of were filming and it basically became more of like a movie production as opposed to a live show um, on stage. And, uh, and so they filmed um, all throughout the, the high school, you know, cafeteria scene. They just went into the cafeteria and filmed there in the gym. They went into the gym and, um, and then some of the students who have been uh, doing film work um, got the opportunity to work on editing. And, and that's what, you know, what's going on now there. Um, you know, there's a couple of students basically just in the room editing this all together. And it was just a pretty cool opportunity for them. And, um, and so now next week on Friday, um, they're going to do a, um, a live or, or a showing on a big movie screen, an outdoor movie showing at the football field uh, in Riverhead. And people can buy tickets in advance and they'll get about, you know, I think about 300 people or so is what their um, capacity is going to be. And, um, they were able to get a partnership with a local company called main street productions to provide the, uh, the movie screen. And then a, a local a booster group that uh, helped fund some of the art stuff uh, picked up the cost for that. So it was a real kind of community effort for you know, this all to come together. And, um, That's so cool. and then people can buy tickets to watch it from home um, next weekend. If you know, if they can't make it down to, uh, to the live show and you know, you know what? Story. <laughs> what, it's just That's such awesome. a good story and, and, and arts in school like warms my cockles because that's absolutely. something that they're going to remember the kids are going to remember and mm. help them in life i mean yeah. art helps you in life you know i love yeah, the, the, editor, the, the, the the video editor kids get a piece of it i mean that's just great you know yeah and what i was thinking I'm too is bridget to your point um, you know, a, a high school theater troupe's live performance is kind of ethereal. Um, this is something really tangible that those kids will be able to hold on to for right. the rest of their lives. Theater is, theater is a transient art. It's like chocolate. Yeah, it yeah the, the clips will be shown at their wedding, you know, to exactly. great embarrassment. <laughs> it's a, it, talk about, you know, lemons in the lemonade. That's an amazing, amazing story. Um, Bridget, you guys also, we have a couple minutes left, and you guys also have a nice story this week about a shop in Southfold. And tell us about One for All. It was actually in, yes, it was in last week's um, edition, but it's a, it's a feel-good story. Uh, Teresa and Sean DeMarco, a mother and son, uh, duo opened a store in uh, the Featherhill Plaza in Southhold called One for All. And it is, um, I think that's what it's called. I'm just suddenly going, is it all for one? No, no, it's one. No, for it's all. one for all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, and and uh, you'd walk into the store and you would think it's like any other, you know, store that has jewelry and clothing and, you know, dry goods and coffee and all assortment of things. But but all of the vendors who provide for the store are um, differently abled. So there is jewelry made by a girl with Down syndrome and there's amazing like folk art paintings of farm animals by this 26 year old kid who's who's autistic. Um, Sean DeMarco, Teresa's son, is autistic and it was his idea to start this store. So they have everything and, and, and it's great quality, amazing stuff. Hmm. Um, we actually bought the coffee and uh, I was drinking it this morning uh, <laughs> used by a, a girl. Um, uh, I, I believe who's Down syndrome, but anyway, it's just an amazing store, and I just recommend everybody to go in and and show the love for these um, incredible entrepreneurs who are differently abled. 
So that's, that's great fun. stuff. And it's like I said, those are the kinds of stories we tell that I think are so important. Uh, we got about uh, two minutes left. Let's go real quickly. Um, Joe, what uh, what you working on uh, for the upcoming week? Um, yeah, upcoming week, um, you know, we're following um, we've written a bunch of stories about a couple of uh, proposals over at Enterprise uh, Park at Calverton for these a couple of drag racing events that have been in the works. Um, and uh, there's been, you know, some some feedback from uh, community members who are not too thrilled with the idea of uh, some of these uh, race events kind of coming into the neighborhood. And uh, so we've been we have a new story on that up on the Riverhead News Review, and um, we're expecting the, the town board at its meeting next week to um, uh, either approve or not approve a couple of special event applications for these. And so uh, we're going to be following that to see if these uh, events uh, for later this summer uh, come to fruition that's, or not. That's a big, passionate community, no question. David, how yeah, about absolutely. you? Oh, we've got uh, local elections kicking it up. We've got a mayor's race in Sag Harbor and a, a Democratic primary for town board, including supervisor in East Hampton. And given the, the uh, very Democratic shift in the electorate in recent years, this actually could turn out to be the supervisor election, maybe decided on the 22nd. So that's those two, uh, you know, two lead ups. That's that's really going to be the focus of a lot of coverage next week. Definitely big stuff. Bridget, 30 seconds. What you got coming up? Uh, Lima Bean Musical. Um, <laughs> no, we, we also have a new uh, column that we just started in the Memorial Day issue called Up at Bat. Um, Dan's is one of the presenting sponsors or is the presenting sponsor of the Writers and Artists, Artists and Writers game this year. And so we're giving uh, writers a free reign. It's Alex Oclo this week. And next week is Tom Clavin, who I believe we've all worked with. Yeah, uh, Tom. And, uh, Alec Baldwin is going to be writing for us. Judy Carmichael. It's going to be a really fun column. They, they are able to write about whatever they want. Wonderful. Shout out to Tom. Great His idea. book is is a bestseller right now too. Yes. Um, yeah, so it's a dozen career. books or something, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so that's great. Uh, it's it's been a great uh, conversation as always. Uh, thank you to David Rattray of the East Hampton Star, Joe Joe Workmeister of the Times and View Media Group, Bridget Leroy of Dance Papers, and uh, to my co-host Bill Sutton. I'm Joe Shaw. We're from the Express News Group. Uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, and thank you guys. Good good conversation. Mm-hmm.